Dave, you started Closed Loop to transform healthcare with big data and AI. You now power multiple use cases. But before diving into these use cases, I think we should start with a brief overview of the platform itself. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great place to start because we always at Closed Loop think of ourselves not as building individual models. We're not building a diabetes predictor or chronic care predictor, but we're really building a platform that enables us to easily build all kinds of predictive models uh, for various healthcare use cases. So what we have at Closed Loop is a healthcare data science platform. So that's a data processing and machine automated machine learning capability that's built specifically and exclusively for healthcare. So we can take in data like electronic medical records or prescription claims or medical claims or lab data, and then allow data scientists, either our data scientists or our customers' data scientists, to quickly build predictive models uh, that are highly accurate, that are explainable, and that predict that drive real tangible outcomes for them. So interesting things about your platform are that the one thing is built exclusively for healthcare. The other one is that it's high precision and the third one is that it's explainable. Can you talk about all three of them and unpack them a little bit more? Yeah, yeah. So I think building specifically for healthcare was an important part of uh, the decision with the platform. Healthcare data is complicated. There's more than 100,000 drug codes in the United States for every single person. Uh, prescription you can get. There's 70,000 plus procedure diagnosis codes, tens of thousands of procedure codes, um, and plus doctor's notes that come in in uh, a variety of sort of, it might as well be coded language. It's certainly not uh, standard English that people can read. Um, so the complexity of the data in healthcare and, and the wide range of problems makes dealing with that data very difficult compared to, say, a simple image prediction or something like that. Um, and so by building specifically for healthcare, we were able to build in a lot of healthcare knowledge around how the data works, how to process uh, healthcare data specifically, how to deal with codes, how to keep the system updated as those new codes change from year to year to year. Um, and then also calculating and enriching the data in ways that sort of is specific to healthcare. So um, examples of the kinds of things we can do are Given somebody's prescription record, we can know how often they're taking the medicines they're prescribed, how far away they live from the pharmacy where they're usually getting their prescriptions, how many times a month they're going to see their uh, going to, to the pharmacy to get prescriptions filled. So there's a lot of information that if you just have the raw data, you can extract, but it really takes the domain knowledge to enrich it. Um, so for being built specifically for healthcare, that's a lot of uh there's a lot of work that goes in, into that. Um, we're also taking research that's being uh, published on various predictive models or features or interesting data uh, assets and then bringing that into the platform for our customers so that the platform is constantly getting better. So that's sort of a lot of the building specifically for healthcare. I think it's a, it's a unique domain and um, off-the-shelf tools are valuable underneath for the algorithms, but in order to get these systems to work in practice in the real world, there's a lot that an individual healthcare organization would have to do. Uh, as far as accuracy, I think understanding 
you know, how to bring all the right data to bear on an individual problem is important. And just having a good solid machine learning pipeline. We build on top of open source algorithms. Like, you know, it's tough to beat the research community, but building a very robust and solid pipeline that consistently works every time to deliver high quality results is important. Um, we can talk more about the contest we we want to sort of prove our accuracy later, but but that's an important part of what we do. And then finally, explainability is the third key area. Um, again, in healthcare, explainability is not a nice to have. Uh, everybody, you know, it, most of the time, our predictions are mediating some decision that is that has a bunch of factors in it, and. Uh, the people consuming our predictions need to understand why the model is doing what it's doing in order to uh, audit those predictions to gain trust in them. And so with every prediction we create, we create a set of contributing factors that are basically, here are the reasons why we made this prediction. And that those can be things that increase the prediction risk or decrease the prediction risk. Um, and those are sort of key, both to understanding how to use the predictions but also for understanding, contextualizing the predictions and getting buy-in uh, from, from the users of the predictions that what the model is doing is making sense. Uh, and again, in healthcare, that's, that's absolutely essential. It is absolutely essential in healthcare, especially so. In some other industries like finance and a few other regulated places, it's also very important. But in mm -hmm. healthcare, yeah, our lives depend on the quality of these decisions so we right. have to understand them talk about some of the specific use cases powered by your platform maybe start with the most important ones or the most prominent ones right now yeah so one of the areas that we do a lot of work in is population health so this is sort of thinking about health not from the sort of individual doctor patient interaction but if you imagine a doctor has 2,000 patients that they may be responsible for, on a given day, they may see 10 of those patients. Population health is the other 1,990. Um, what's going on with them? So these are, we can monitor populations and find risks. So an example of something that we do very frequently is uh, unplanned hospital admissions risk. So if, if what you want to do is improve people's care and you want to lower the total cost of care, at the time they've gone into the hospital, it is now too late. There is, if you're inpatient in the hospital, something very bad has happened to you and it's going to be very expensive. So if you really want to prevent that, you have to do that before, you have to intervene before the person goes into the hospital, which means you need to be able to predict who is going to, who is riskiest uh, for going in for an unplanned hospitalization. And so that's one of our core use cases is sort of monitoring people's day-to-day -day health history. We can see, when lab values change, we can see when people have either begun taking a new medicine or stopped taking an old medicine, correlate that with lab values, uh, and then see, hey, this person is on a trend that does not look good. Let's reach out and proactively do something now rather than waiting until a situation happens. And so most of our customers uh, can deal, can have a chronic care management program or some kind of proactive care plan that they're using to reach out. You can't reach out to every patient every day, but if you can predict accurately who is most at risk, you can't reach out. Um, that, that's one example. Uh, there are 
There are many other ones sort of in that general space. There are things like palliative care management. So uh, predicting mortality, essentially trying to figure out you know, when people are in their last six months of life. Uh, our medical system is not overall geared towards giving people the right palliative care advice towards the end of their life. And so having a, an algorithm that isn't making decisions for people, but is pointing out, hey, maybe it is time for this person to have a palliative care consult where they can talk to somebody about what it is that they want to do at the end of their life and how does it make sense to continue these treatments. Um, and again, th that's something that has huge both financial and human benefits. Uh, extra treatment at the end of life that is very expensive and prolongs life for a couple of months at very low quality does not make the, usually is not easy on the family. It's not good for the person uh, undergoing it. Most people, when they're asked how they want to die, they, want, they say they want to die at home surrounded by loved ones. And yet many people end up in a hospital on a bunch of drugs, hooked up to a bunch of machines. It's exactly what they say they don't want to have happen. And it's what happens because the system can push you down that way. And it turns out that it's much more expensive when that happens also. So uh, if you can get people the right counseling to make better, you know, not better decisions, but more appropriate decisions for them towards the end of their life, uh, that can be valuable. The two ones that you just mentioned are so powerful. Palliative care, for sure, but predicting hospitalizations before they happen, even more so. It's like a holy grail of healthcare, I think, being able to predict the things that haven't happened yet. I wonder this direction of going into this type of uh, predictive uh, interventions. Is it something you chosen for a specific reason? Uh, or is it something that industry kind of pushed the company into? I think there has been a big shift in the healthcare industry over the last 10 plus years uh, towards what's called value-based care. So uh, I'm talking about specifically in the United States here, but in the United States, healthcare was traditionally a fee-for-service kind of operations. Doctors were paid for running tests and performing procedures. Uh, they weren't actually paid to make you healthier. They, did, they don't necessarily make more money when you're healthier. They made more money when they did more treatments to you. Um, that created a set of incentives to over-treat patients and not to have uh, improved care. And it also sets up a, a sort of a, an, uh, antagonistic relationship between sort of the insurance company and the provider, the doctor, the person paying and the person providing the care, uh, not, not having everybody work together. The shift overall in the industry is value-based care, which is setting up financial incentives for doctors and other healthcare providers to provide high-quality care at a lower cost. So um, with value-based care, you're ideally incenting doctors to make their patients healthier uh, rather than simply doing more treatments. And I... It's always important to clarify in this. I'm talking about incentives here. I, doctors want to make people healthier. <laughs> so I'm not trying to say that they don't have an interest in doing that. But the system they work within was not set up in a way that financially incented them and financially rewarded them for doing that. If 
you know, a hospital makes more money when you go to the hospital and have an operation than they do when you're at home healthy. But society is better off when you're at home healthy and contributing. Um, Value-based care starts to shift that model where the providers can actually be financially incented and do better when their patients are healthier. That shift, as soon as you shift from a model based on throughput and doing tests to one based on healthier outcomes, there's a shift immediately to a different way of operating where you want to be more proactive. You're very interested in reducing that utilization. You're very interested in getting ahead of problems to try to prevent the future cost of care. And that's why you need the analytics and kind of predictive uh, uh, modeling that we have. So I think there's always been an interest in predicting unplanned hospitalizations because we want to treat people better. What's changed in the last five to 10 years is financial incentives are now aligned where you can actually build a business around. And in terms of the financial incentives, does it mean that now the hospitals are more open to pay for the system? I, I mean, how does it work? If they prevented hospitalization, they likely lost the money they would have gotten from helping <laughs> that patient during the hospitalization. So why would they pay for the system uh, that helps them make less money? Yes, yes. So uh, health, this is part of what all makes healthcare such a complicated industry. But basically, the, the way these these kinds of deals are structured is say, there's a kind of organization called an accountable care organization that was created as part of the uh, Affordable Care Act or Obamacare uh, was created 10 plus years ago. Um, so an accountable care organization is basically a provider that has a, a risk-sharing incentive with whoever the payer is. So uh, let's say it's Medicare in this case, the federal government. Medicare says there are 2,000 patients that, for a particular doctor, and usually it's not an individual doctor level, let's say it's a group of 10 doctors who have 20,000 patients. Medicare says, if I look at your population of 20,000 people, on average, across the Medicare population, a group that looks like this would cost X dollars per year. If you can lower the, if you can provide quality care at a lower cost, we are going to allow you to share in that savings. So if you can, every million dollars you can save uh, in their total care, 500,000 goes to the provider. So they actually do get, if the person doesn't go to the hospital, but generally a person like that would end up in the hospital, part of that savings does actually come back to the, uh, to the provider and they can make money. This all gets very complicated because you need to have an understanding of, well, what does your population look like and what would you expect to have happen? And this is where things can get very complicated and difficult. But um, it, it is also a case where, you know, that's where you need better analytics and better characterizations of people's health state to run that system effectively. But when it, when it all comes together, it actually does align all the incentives in the way you'd want Yeah, the sharing in, in savings does align the incentives. I understand that Medicare does it. Is it different for the commercial types of health insurance or are they kind of trending in the same direction? 
it's 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 trending. So so the way healthcare tends to work in the U.S. is that Medicare is such the federal government running Medicare is such a dominant industry. Healthcare is actually very unusual because the government actually leads. I can't think of many other industries where this actually occurs, but really, Medicare is very progressive on moving to value based care. And what they do is set a lot of the standards. They work out some of these systems and figure out the policies. And then a lot of the commercial insurance, uh, they can sort of follow along on that. They can use all the structures that Medicaid has set up. So hospitals, an interesting thing is quality of care. So uh, as part of these programs, hospitals have to demonstrate that they're demonst- that they're providing quality care to their patients. They have reporting requirements around quality and regulations that they have to meet. CMS sets up all those things for these Medicare shared savings programs, but then commercial insurers can use the same reports that are generated for Medicare to ensure quality for their patient population. So um, there is definitely a follow-on of all the commercial insurers. Where Medicaid goes, the rest of the industry tends to follow. And so in a nutshell, the industry produces better outcomes, healthier population, lower costs, and makes money out of this. And this is a great opportunity to deploy the predictive tools, predictive platforms like closed loop to run the processes more efficiently. Yeah. Healthcare is 20% of the U.S. economy. It's a giant, giant industry. Um, and, and it is, uh, by a lot of objective metrics, particularly inefficient in the U.S., So the way you just phrased it makes it all sound great, but we have to understand that the system was incredibly broken and running incredibly inefficiently compared to other countries where where we started. So although these these improvements have been a big step forward, there's just a lot of ground left to do to really get to uh, the level of care and the level of quality we need. The value-based care, though, I think is, U.S. is one of the pioneers uh, of implementing it overall. It, it, it is true that uh, the cost per patient or the percentage of GDP, the U.S. healthcare among the developed world is the most expensive by huge margin. But the value-driven care, I think, uh, is like an innovation. I'm not sure. I haven't followed closely. Maybe like I'm missing it, but it seems like it's more of a U.S. innovation. Or did the did the U.S. government borrowed it from somewhere? No, I, I think the U.S. is definitely pioneering. The U.S. is sort of in its own space um, um, because healthcare is nationalized in so many other countries, and you know, single payer systems dominate in other places. So um, th- there, there's sort of different sets of incentives that can be created uh, in those other environments. Um, but you know, the U.S. has its. The U.S. has its system. We're doing the best we can in, within that. And I agree with you. The, it, by lots of metrics, those metrics show that there will be a lot of work to do. Let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about the AI systems powering closed-loop capabilities. What were the most important things that happened in AI that became the trigger for you to say, yeah, now we can start and build the product that we envision? There are so many things. Uh, you know, a lot of what we do 
uh, falls in the realm of, from, from an AI perspective, a lot of what we do falls in the realm of more traditional tabular data problems. Um, and so for us, the solidification of those systems, so getting things like XGBoost that works every time out of the box very well with a robust pipeline in it. I, I have a background in machine learning that goes back 20 plus years. And I remember the day when every model required relentless tweaking and tuning and you were constantly putting together different algorithmic approaches into a big pipeline. And uh, that needed to be customized for every single problem you were trying to tackle. And I think the level of maturity and the sort of core machine learning algorithms to get to the point where, you know, we can take a data set and with a straightforward outcome and provided our labels are accurate and our feature set is good, we will get a highly accurate model every single time with a process that doesn't require any tuning. So we eliminated a whole, you know, this automated machine learning that eliminates a whole big step of the process. Um, for us, that was one of the keys because we're really interested in trying to do this at scale. Like I, we're not trying to build one model that we sell to every hospital in the country. I don't think given the state of the technology, that's uh, the, the the variation in populations and, and problems that people have in the way they want to use the models. I don't think we're at a place where we can have the one model that solves everything. Uh, but, you know, we're, it's chat GPT now, so maybe we do have the model that solves everything, but I'm still going to hold out that I, I don't think we're quite there yet on detailed healthcare problems. Um, and so for us, it's about if we want to scale this, we have to figure out how to, how to replicate this process at scale very robustly. And I think that the maturity of the tools that's created the ability to do that uh, has been transformative for us. There's, a, there's several other things in healthcare that were really important. The, the electronic medical records are really a relatively new invention when we, when we They've now been around for about 10 years, which means there's enough history built up in those that you can actually do machine learning. Uh, but when we started the company in 2017, you know, most electronic medical record systems had less than five years of history in them, maybe two years or something. So the data was there, it was on a good path, but you weren't at a position where you had rich data sets that you could train machine learning models over a long period of time. Yeah. Definitely ChatGPT is not there yet, and it's going to take us a while to get there. So until then, we'll have to rely on kind of tried and proven systems that work. And speaking of the systems, what are the build-by decisions you have to make? What kind of things you use? You mentioned that you rely heavily on the like basic building blocks uh, for the open source community. And uh, what do you have to build in-house? And what kind of challenges did you have building those things there? Yeah, our, our machine learning pipeline uh, built on open source tools like XGBoost, Scikit-Learn. So that, you know, that was a fairly easy decision. Those are very robust tools, are highly accurate. Uh, on the data handling side, because we have so much rich feature engineering we do that incorporates a lot of clinical and domain knowledge, uh, we have a large sort of data processing engine that that works up front. We actually, so that is built on Apache Spark for us. And we have a, essentially a feature engineering language for clinical expressions that uh, 
that we've created and that's implemented on uh, to run efficiently on top of Apache Spark. So that was a big uh, sort of decision for us to sort of make that investment on, you know, building that sort of domain specific language that allows the kinds of clinical operations people need to do very quickly and efficiently. So that was a, that's probably our major build effort um, in, in putting that together and getting that engine to work well. You had to build this language basically from scratch to let, to speed up the process of creating new features and new models uh, by engineers who don't necessarily kind of go that deep into the engineering the systems from scratch. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really important uh, in healthcare. You'll have you know a very common something very common in healthcare might be I we want to find all patients who were newly diagnosed with diabetes and within six weeks after their first prescription or with, after their first diagnosis started receiving a prescription for metformin, which is a a, a diabetes drug. Um, that kind of logic involves in if if you parse together what that actually requires is i have to understand what diabetes is and how to identify it in a record and there are hundreds of diagnosis codes that represent diabetes and you need to know uh which ones are in which ones are out metformin is actually a generic drug name that might have i'm not sure but there there are certainly hundreds of different individual drug codes every different size bottle, the gel cap versus the tablet, all of these things generate different drug codes when you go to the pharmacy. Um, So you have to be able to sort of reach down in the data, group all these different codes, understand the relative timing uh, that needs to happen, because this is very important in healthcare. We're looking for events that happen in a certain time series. Um, You got a diagnosis, then received a drug, and then maybe had some follow-up. All of those kinds of operations we wanted to be able to express very concisely in a language that you, know, you can write that in two sentences of English, but how do you get the machine to interpret all that uh, and correctly pull out the right set of patients for you for a training set or some kind of evaluation? Uh, so that that was one of the big pieces of investment we had that um, has actually paid off not only in the machine learning aspects of what we're doing, but also just general reporting and the ability to evaluate uh, these programs once they're underway and just having a very robust way to ask clinical questions of a set of data is, is turns out to be just a valuable capability in and of itself. Right. And it also helps document everything and it helps clarify intentions uh, and clarify the meaning of what the customer actually wanted to get in the first place. Yeah, yeah. We try to have these expressions be small enough and understandable enough so that you can have clinical experts look at them. Because one of the problems you'll end up with is uh, if you take a statement like what I just described, metformin and diabetes, and you hand that to some developer who's going to write two pages of Python or 400 lines of SQL code, you can't hand that back to the clinician who gave the requirement and say, does this do what you wanted it to do? It just becomes, you know, they're not able to parse that. So they, you end up with a long QA cycle as you try to sort of figure out the data or what went wrong in these specifications that it becomes tricky. Uh, whereas if the clinician can sort of look at and understanding, 
understand the specifications and say, no, those are not exactly the codes I was interested in. Diabetes. Well, do you care about gestational diabetes that happens generally for pregnant women, but is very different than the sort of standard diabetes that you think about as a chronic condition? Those are the kinds of things a clinical expert will see right away that, you know, if, if that spec is handed to a programmer, they're not going to know to ask those questions. You also already talked about explainability and its importance in healthcare. I wonder, was it a kind of challenge to implement the explainability within the systems? And what is your approach? Some people use Shapley values. There are other approaches. So how do you approach this problem? Yep. Yep. Um, so it, it, it was challenging to understand how to get explainability to sort of work in a very in a, in a sort of user understandable way. Uh, so uh, what we do is based on Shapley values underneath. The math behind Shapley values is wonderful and the theoretical uh, underpinnings of that method are excellent. Uh, the difficulty you run into is when you try to explain to to a casual user what a log odds score is. <laughs> because that's, that's the initial numbers that get produced. And sort of if you have a model that has 500 features in it, you're getting 500 different log odds scores. And that just sort of great that that's now explainable but how do you give that to a way to a user in a way that's interpretable so we added two key uh developments on top of shaft scores one is a normalization uh, uh process that basically converts the shaft scores into sort of a percent of average deviation um i use that sort of standard deviation because that has a name but sort of Hey, for a general person, how how much of a factor would this thing be? Where a hundred represents sort of about you know kind of all the explainability of your average prediction, and sort of you know things could be fifty. Or if somebody has a very extreme position prediction, it might be sort of two hundred. So we get those things on a scale that is more interpretable. Um, and the other thing we had to do was significance testing because. If you just give people a list of SHAP scores, they look down at the 27th SHAP score on the list with a value of 0.00001 and they, hey, I don't understand this factor. And the answer is that factor is just noise. That thing didn't really matter. There is a SHAP score. So how do you understand where the significance threshold is for Shapley values? So we have uh, some techniques to, to determine the significance of Shapley values that allow us to better present a concise list of factors to a user that is also scaled in a way that is comprehensible to them and works across models. One of the other problems with SHAP is because it's a log odds score, uh, a model with a 50% prevalence will have a very different set of SHAP scores than a model with a 5% prevalence just because the log odds um, are just very different. Uh, so those are the kinds of things we had to work through with extensive user testing. Um, even though underlyingly it was always SHAP all the time, um, those two layers on top actually took us a while to develop and get uh, really nailed down so that they became intuitive for people. In your experience for the healthcare customers on the other end of your platform, what is the most important kind of what what do they what should they get from the explainability piece of AI? to feel a trust deploying the system? Yeah, so what I found in my experience 
of delivering a lot of models to to a lot of different clinical stakeholders is that um, when clinical stakeholders feel that they have some input into the model and and it's reflecting what their particular view is. Um, now the models are sort of objectively true based on, you know, we're always predicting a defined outcome and raising the accuracy. But one of the things we get with um, the explainability is the ability to help people understand how to make models actionable. And it, it, this probably helps with a concrete example. One of, um, one of the first models we ever built, actually the first model we ever built, it was predicting uh, future cost of care and future hospitalizations. Uh, it was actually on a Medicaid population that had a lot of uh, uh, young mothers and children in it. And one of the highest uh, drivers of future cost was pregnancy. Our model learned that pregnant women are going to end up in the hospital. Now, we, we don't deserve a whole lot of uh, props for that. Uh, but it was important because when that came out, it allowed the people, you know, we we're working with the customer. And, and when they see, oh, by far the top factor that's showing up is pregnancy. Oh, okay. Well, we actually, pregnancy isn't what we're interested in. That's what we're, we're not, we're not trying to build a model to deal with pregnancy. We've got a good program for that. So by seeing the explainability, it allowed them to give input on the development of the model in a way that they didn't put it together abstractly from mathematical principles. They said, Hey, when we see pre pregnancy, we understand that's true, but it's not something we're interested in. Can you exclude that from the model? We don't want pregnant. Um, we don't want to predict pregnancy or, and then cancer pops to the top of the list. And this particular group was like, Hey, we're a bunch of social workers who resolve social determinants of health needs. Cancer isn't something we can do about. Can we, so we adjust. And, and remove the cancer patients. And then the people they're interested in start to bubble to the top of the list. So that explainability comes out as it gives them an understanding of the model. It gives them trust. They understand cancer patients and pregnant women are going to be expensive, but it also gives them the control to adjust what that model's doing until it's picking out the people they want for the reasons that they're interested in. Um, and that, it's a little bit subtle, but that sort of ability to give people a feeling like, oh, this isn't a computer telling me what to do. This is me asking the computer to identify the people I'm interested in finding and it doing it in a mathematically rigorous way that's free of biases. When that switch kinds of happens is usually when people start to get trust and they start to see, oh, okay, now I'm getting what I want out of this algorithm. Um, and so that's often it takes a couple of steps to get there, but but usually once you get there, you end up with something that's very powerful, powerful and trusted by the uh, practitioners. You just mentioned yeah. bias in this previous sentence, and bias is a uh, usually pops up as a problem in uh, AI in multiple industries. I think in healthcare specifically, what's your relationships with bias? Bias is a huge, so I'll start out with bias is a huge problem and nobody has all the answers here. I, this is, this was an extensive, uh, uh, we, we've looked extensively into bias and fairness. There are huge, uh, 
health inequities, uh, racial and socioeconomic disparities in healthcare. Um, I can tell you any model you build to predict health outcomes, socioeconomic status is one of the top five variables influencing that model. Every time for every model, there is no condition for which it's not better to be rich, basically. Um, and that's, that's just a reality of I've done this a lot. Um, so one of the core important things is when you have these structural imbalances today in the system, if you do not correct for them when you are building a model, you will perpetuate them. Um, the it's machine learning, it's going to take in data and it's going to learn the patterns in the data and give you predictions based on those patterns. If you do not correct for the biases in the data, the important thing is in healthcare to understand that in healthcare, you're starting out with a biased model every time until you resolve it. It's not like, oh, bias can creep in. It's you either actively removed it or it's there. Um, there's a, a bunch of considerations uh, in healthcare with, with bias and fairness. I think we actually separate the two. So we, bias we view as, um, is a little bit of a math problem. It's, you know, does this algorithm behave consistently for different protected groups? You can measure that mathematically. You can set limits around it and there's various techniques to remove it. Um, and so it's important, but it's, it's a little more mechanistic than fairness. Fairness is not a math problem and it's very important to understand this. Um, and it's also fairness is a property of the model and how it's used. It's not a property of the model itself. So you could use, for example, you could use race to predict uh, emergency room utilization. And you might find racial differences in use of the emergency room versus primary care physicians. Uh, using that model to determine how to set your insurance rates is unethical. We've decided that we've passed laws. You're not allowed to do that. You, if you're using race to decide how to set somebody's insurance rates, that's clearly illegal, clearly unethical. However, if you're trying to provide outreach and education to people on how to properly use the system, you probably just want the most accurate model possible. And you're reaching out to help people. You could use the same model that would be illegal to use to set rates but it's probably ethically the correct decision to include race in that model because it will help reduce the disparity uh, and reduce the misutilization by including race. Uh, and there's a, there, there are, uh, without going into too much detail, there are plausible causal factors that can make race relevant in that situation. So uh, one of the important things we always, we have a process for bias and fairness uh, assessment. And it's a, it's a staged process that we've actually built into uh, our platform that you can walk through. And it sort of does a bias assessment you can look through and then helps with fairness. Although fairness, don't trust anybody who puts a fairness score on your model in an automated way. You can use a metric to understand fairness and then decide if that is fair or not. Um, but it always takes an understanding of how that model is being used because um, it, it, fairness ultimately comes down to, are you, are you making disparities worse or making disparities better? And what is your objective? And those are not questions that 
have statistical answers. It sounds like fair. It's always great to have the most comprehensive data. And the fairness is what you do with the data. The actions can be either fair or not fair. Or not fair, right. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the personal journey, your personal journey and the origins of the company. So why did you decide to focus on this set of problems? Why did you decide to start a closed loop and how the founding team came together? Yeah, yeah. So my background in sort of healthcare and machine learning goes back over 20 years at this point. Uh, I was on the human genome project at MIT. I started my career in enterprise software 2001, just, and you know, the internet boom came to an end and I was like, I'm going to go do something else. And I and ended up getting an opportunity to work on the human genome project at MIT, uh, sequencing the human genome and then doing follow-on analysis. My, my job was genome annotation. So follow-on analysis after the genome was annotated, there were three and a half billion A's, G's, C's, and T's in a big text file. Uh, and sort of running algorithms on that to try to map all of known biology onto the genome. That was kind of my first foray into the space. Uh, it was really where I started learning. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't AI or machine learning. We just called it pattern detection back then. Um, it was pattern detection in the genome. Uh, really loved that space. Uh, it was wonderful. I learned a ton. Um, got, got a real scientific background. Um, in, in addition to sort of computer science background, you know, real hard science biology background, which kind of taught me a different way of thinking. I did that, but I was not an academic. I sort of needed to see tangible results in the real world. And uh, the Genome Project was wonderful, but I, I just needed to get a little bit closer to actually helping care for people. Um, 20 years later, we're actually seeing, a, you know, genomics has actually led to a lot of revolutions, but it, I didn't have the patience. Uh, I went from there into drug discovery and pharma um, and, and using machine learning for uh, a bunch, bunch of early uh, target identification and, and drug discovery and lead optimization, uh, things that are very being all revolutionized now with deep learning. But this, this was back in the early days with that uh, kind of stuff. Um, I did that for a while, but then I... <laughs> realized one day that you know, the, the problem with healthcare in the U.S. wasn't that we didn't have enough pills. Uh, sort of like, is this really the issue? Um, and, and I just decided that I was missing something. This working in drug discovery was not addressing the problems I really wanted to address and like, why is healthcare broken in the United States? Uh, and that's in no way to disparage uh, like, Tons of people who work super hard to create life-saving therapies for people. And that is absolutely wonderful. So I don't want to disparage that industry at all. Um, it, it, it felt to me like it wasn't addressing the core problems I wanted to hit. Um, at some point, when the, when the Affordable Care Act came out, I got the opportunity to start working with actual patient data, um, claims data. Some, I had done a lot of machine learning and AI at the time um, and started building... Uh, machine learning models based on claims data for insurance companies who wanted to understand what the impact of the Affordable Care Act would be. And that's really when I started looking looking at uh, healthcare delivery. And are we really 
we have all these treatments, but are we make, using all the right data to make all the right decisions all the time? And that was where I really started to feel like, oh, okay, this is the area I really want to work on. Um, did that for a while. And then in 2017, uh, sort of several factors came together. I think the technology, the trends in value-based care, the electronic medical records were getting ready. There was a lot of new data becoming available. Um, my, my founding partner, Andrew I, who's our CEO, I had known him for 20 years, uh, uh, worked together very early, uh, his first job out of college, he worked with me. And then um, he had since founded and sold a couple of companies. He had, in 2015, he sold his company, prior company to uh, VMware. And at that point, we began talking about, hey, let's do the next company together. Um, and then didn't, didn't actually found the company until we, we played around with a lot of ideas, but then in 2017 ended up, uh, founding closed loop felt like it was the right time and there was an opportunity. So uh, kind of in the hype, 2017 was the hype of, uh, computer vision, deep learning, all self-driving cars, Bitcoin, you know, it was, it was the rise of Bitcoin. It was the rise of self-driving cars will be here in three years. Um, and, and. We were like, ah, we think this AI and healthcare stuff might be a good place to uh, to land. So that's kind of how we, how we got started. Your bet so far turned out much better than the self-driving cars one. So I guess you did cars, the right decision. Cryptocurrency, self-driving cars, or uh, virtual reality, augmented reality. Those were the three areas we were looking at to start the company. I, mm. I, I feel like the AI trend was the right one, but we, we are still happy with our decision to pick AI out of those four. So. Right. You mentioned that this human genome project gave you another way of thinking. You called it like hard biological background and different way of thinking. What is the different way of thinking? Yeah, so... I I love software. I was like, you know, I was always software algorithms person. Like, you mess something up in a computer program, you just run it again. Just try it again, try it again, try it again. Um, and you just keep rapidly experimenting as fast as you can, uh, looking at what you have, fixing it, and going on to the next thing until you get something that works. Uh, when you're a biologist and you messed up, like, you might be 20 hours into a 48 hour experiment. You don't just like hit undo and start again. Um, so just seeing with biology and hard science and, and the human genome project, I saw the, uh, you, you know, just because it was real world wet experiments, the amount of times things took to occur and the difficulty when you didn't, when you didn't think everything through ahead of time and you didn't appropriately control your experiment, um, problems people had. So I, what I saw with biologists and chemists would, they would spend an incredible amount of time thinking about how to control their experiment, how to, what's everything that could go wrong in this experiment? How would I detect that that, if it did go wrong, how would I detect it? If possible, how could I correct it automatically within the experiment? Um, or at least find out as soon as possible. And so, um, and they, they would get incredibly creative about things that could go wrong. And then, and that was just not a discipline most computer scientists have. Um, and, and 
you know, and that translates back when I, um, so A, it gave me an appreciation for, if you're a computer scientist and you're working with a biologist and you're like, hey, I, I've, I ran this algorithm and here's the compound I think you should go build. And then the chemist goes off and spends a week building that compound. And six days into that week, you're like, oh, I found a bug. It's actually a different compound you should have been building. If you're a computer scientist, you're like, yeah, I found a bug. I fixed it. I got a new list. Well, you just wasted a week of somebody's time. Um, and so you don't have to make that mistake too many times before you, it really changes the way you think about the results you're creating. And you really think, oh, I'm not just producing some spreadsheet I'm, or some list. I'm, I'm, I need to be able to stand behind these results. And I need to think through this with all the rigor that the scientist does because even though I can rerun this algorithm, the impact of the results I'm producing has downstream effects. And I have to think about those downstream effects. When I get into healthcare and every row in the, every prediction I'm making is about a human life and somebody's likelihood of going to the hospital, it, I don't want to just produce a new list tomorrow that is different because I fixed a bug. You really have like bringing that, that, thought process of trying to anticipate everything that can go wrong, try to discover it and try to correct it as soon as possible. That was, that was kind of the, the thought process I learned from dealing with, you know, biologists and chemists and other wet scientists. Much more thoughtful, much more cautious very about the consequences. It's very humbling. Um, uh, it, it definitely is. Now you decided to start the company leveraging AI in healthcare and healthcare is notoriously difficult to get into as an industry. So how did you go about, first of all, I'm sure you realized it. So why, despite understanding that it's going to be a very hard industry to break into, you decided to go into it. And the second, were there some unfair advantages or anything? And where did the first customers actually come from? Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, it comes, one of the things I always tell entrepreneurs is like, don't, don't ever start a company if you're afraid of it failing. You, 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 and, and what I mean by, and like, don't ever start a company that you would regret it failing. Like be passionate about enough about the idea you're tackling. So that even if the company doesn't work out, you're like, no, it was worth it to understand what was wrong with that idea I had. Um, cause if you're not that passionate and you can't get that motivation every day, um, you're not going to be successful. So, uh, I was in healthcare cause I just couldn't do anything else. After I had that taste of healthcare early in the days with the human genome project, um, and then working in drug discovery, and realizing the potential of the impact we could have on, Hey, I can write computer programs that actually can improve people's health. And once I believed that that was a feasible path, writing computer programs that did anything else didn't seem like it was that worthwhile. Um, so I did a bunch of, I, I ran a quantitative hedge fund for a couple of years. I worked in precision, ag, did some precision agriculture. I, I had a little foray into it, helped a company that uh, was eventually bought by Twitter that did online advertising. 
I kept trying to take these machine learning skills into some other industry. Every time I did it, I was like, this just isn't healthcare. So, um, you know, for me, the reason I'm in healthcare is because I can't get as excited about any other industry as I can about healthcare because of the impact I can have. Um, would have been a lot easier if I could have been as excited about quantitative trading as I was about healthcare. But, uh, but in the end, you got to do the thing that, that motivates you. So, yeah, that's, that's very well said. Very well said. Uh, and it's important as we grow the company because when we're hiring, um, everything you said is true. Like healthcare is a hard industry. There's a lot of regulation. It's not the most fast moving industry. They're not the most rapid to adopt technology. And that's for good reason because, you know, people's health is on the line. Um, and so when we're hiring, we're always looking for people who are motivated by the opportunity to improve health because if, if you don't really care about what we're doing, you will find more fulfillment in a different industry. You can get bigger data sets and larger scale and faster experimentation in online ads than you can in healthcare. Um, if that's what people want to do, they should go do that. Um, I don't want to do that. So I end up in healthcare. Now get into tactics. You decided to start the company. You need your first set of data to train your models. You need your first customer to demonstrate that it actually works. And that's actually becomes chicken and egg problem for many companies starting working with big data. So how did you approach this and how did you build your first prototype? Yeah. Um, so it, interestingly, when Andrew and I founded the company, we decided we were going to do this. We bought plane tickets to HIMSS, which is the largest healthcare IT conference in the country every year. Uh, we drove, we, we, we flew out to Orlando. I, we opened up the uh, program and started circling anybody who looked like they might be doing something that was interested with health, interesting in healthcare and AI. And we cold emailed all of them and said, Hey, we're starting a company. We'd love to work. Uh, everybody we met, we offered to, Hey, just give us some data and an opportunity and we'll work for free. Just, just give us a shot. Um, most people declined our invitation or said no, but one, one said yes. Um, so it was Medical Home Network, a uh, Medic Medicaid ACO out of Chicago. Um, we met Cheryl Lulius there at that very first time. She was the very first meeting we ever took as a company. Um, and she agreed to give us some data and do a little pilot project. Um, so we built that pilot project and uh, we were combining medical claims they had with some survey data they had. And we were able to do, we were able to show that they had an algorithm that worked using the survey data and an algorithm that worked during using the claims data. But they didn't have the machine learning capability to just jam those two things together and get a more accurate prediction. And so we were able to take those two disparate data sets, jam them in, build a model and get an improved prediction. Um, that was the one I mentioned earlier that had the had the pregnancy. Um, they ended up becoming our first customer, um, and then from there we you know, we got the second in and the third along sort of similar lines, and then uh, gradually it picks up. But uh, yeah, it's hard at the beginning. Um, really, at the beginning, you're just selling a dream and a vision and a founding team, um, and and getting people to buy into that. Uh, Luckily, I had a lot of experience in the area. So I, 
although we didn't have data I could point to, hey, look at this other company that I used to be at and what they were able to do, I was able to do there. So we had some credibility personally, but uh, and managed to leverage that into some credibility in the company. Was your initial fundraising also based on your credibility mostly, or did you approach it already when you had some uh, solid use cases, some case studies? Uh, we did we did our first fundraising pretty early. Andrew, Andrew led that. He had, he had previously bought and sold two companies, so uh, we were able to get kind of the initial seed funding uh, a little easier than it would have been had we not had somebody who had that experience. So. Uh, and then for the consequent rounds of financing, how is healthcare, like funding for a healthcare focused company, maybe different from what you saw in other types of businesses? Or what are the most important takes away, takeaways from raising funds for building a healthcare software company? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting in healthcare, uh, you, you really have to show depth and an ability to sort of grow the, the, the grow yourself within an individual customer, right? You, it, it is, if you're selling every single small business in the United States, you've got tens of millions of millions of potential customers. Um, so it's about what kind of market share you can achieve. Uh, there aren't, there aren't as many hospitals in the United States. There's not a million hospitals in the United States, so we can't have a million customers. Um, but, uh, we can solve some very, very important problems for those customers. So, you know that healthcare is a large market, um, but you got to find a way, you know, overall it's a large portion of the economy, but you got to find a way to find a big enough slice of that, that you can actually make an impact in and have a big enough impact uh, in, in order to scale that out to a reasonably sized company. Um, you know, there are healthcare specific investors. We found mostly that uh, um, for the most part, our investors do have experience in healthcare. Um, if you it, pitching to somebody who doesn't have any an investor who just doesn't have any other healthcare investments is usually pretty hard because they they don't understand the markets well. But there have obviously been a lot of successful healthcare companies. Epic is an, Optum is one of the largest uh, United Healthcare Optum. These are some of the largest companies in the in the United States. Um, pharma companies are massive, so so there are. There is certainly an opportunity there for big companies, but you need an you need an investor who's willing to go along with you and, and buy into your thesis there. And so that's uh, one of the differences is you know picking investors who are aligned and not not spending a lot of time pitching to people who say, "Well, healthcare sounds really hard." Yeah, it is, but it's also still possible. So uh, that yeah, probably, and probably the harder the, the field, the harder the field the fewer the competitors there. Right. And, you know, it's, it, and it, it's incredibly important. Um, you know, there, there are huge problems to be solved. It's one of the things, healthcare has a lot of problems to be solved. That's one of the advantages. Of, and so you don't have to look very hard. You know, I, I always laugh when people talk about transforming healthcare or revolutionizing healthcare. It's like, you're not going to revolutionize 20% of the economy when you're a startup. Like I, I, we can be very aggressive, super successful, improve the health and lives of tens of millions of people and not revolutionize healthcare. I'll take that. Um, so I, I certainly, we certainly have big visions, but you also have to have a sense of humility of like, 
figure out there, there are lots of problems, find a good problem, figure out a way to solve it, and then figure out how to expand out from there. And that's basically our approach. And it actually sounds very optimistic for uh, new startups and new founders. So many problems that you don't even have to look that hard to find one, just have this passion for solving these small problems one by one and not trying to kind of reinvent everything from scratch instead focusing on these specific issues. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, probably one of the most difficult things is really understanding the whole market in healthcare is a little bit tricky. Um, and we were great to have some great mentors early in the uh, company, Carol McCall, who was uh, one of my mentors who eventually came on as our chief health analytics officer, sort of taught me everything about healthcare and the industry and the way it works. Um, because you really, you, you can figure out the solution to a problem, but then you have to figure out how to build a viable business around that and who's going to pay for that solution. And uh, there's a lot of details that are, that are often tricky in healthcare. You also mentioned there is a contest that you're running. Talk about it. Yeah. So this was, uh, we didn't run it. It was actually CMS, the federal agency that runs Medicare. They launched in 2019 a, the AI Health Outcomes Challenge, which is a $1.6 million X prize, basically, to build explainable AI that physicians trust uh, in healthcare. So it was a big competition, uh, largest healthcare AI competition ever sponsored. Uh, ran for two years. They had over 300 teams that initially applied. Uh, IBM Watson Health, uh, Merck, Deloitte, Geisinger, uh, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, every big name uh, entered this contest. They narrowed it down to 25 contestants and then to seven, con seven finalists. Uh, and then in the end, uh, the winner was a little company in Austin that no one had ever heard of. Uh, it was a closed loop. So we, uh, over that two years, there were, there were three main pieces of that contest. There was accuracy, explainability, and bias and fairness. Um, and so you were rated on all three. We had to, uh, there was a blinded contest where we had to build models to predict adverse health outcomes. And then they, they measured all the solutions to see who was the most accurate. We had to build a, a user interface that allowed that, explain the predictions and clinicians could interact with and we were rated on that and then we had to explain how we address bias and fairness and that's really where we got very heavily into understanding the bias and fairness and how tricky uh that was um so in the end we ended up sort of tops in those categories you know accuracy is really just um making sure we did everything we could with the data um it's very, it's very nerve-wracking to submit those things when there's a million dollars on the line and you've got to upload a set of blinded predictions to a website and then see how it all comes out. Uh, uh, but it was predictions on 500,000 Medicare beneficiaries. So they anonymized the data. We got two and a half million uh, patients to train on over five years. And then we had 500,000 patients that we predicted on uh, for, for the final training. Well, first of all, congratulations on that. Uh, but second, there were all worthy contestants with you in this competition. So what's your take on why did you win? 
Um, I, I think in the end we won because uh, Linus Pauling has a quote of the best way to have a lot of good ideas is to have a lot of ideas. And I think we had a ton of ideas We had, and we had a platform that allowed us to experiment very quickly. So at the, at the start of the project, we made a list of 257 ideas that we could try and we tried every single one of them. Um, most of them didn't work, but a couple of them worked and a couple of them worked very, very well. Um, and so we, you know, many of those organizations had a lot more clinical experience or a lot more scale. Uh, we approached it as a software company and a, from an experimentation, let's build a platform, let's experiment, 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 and you know, see how fast we can build new models. Um, built hundreds and hundreds of models in the process of that competition. Uh, and I think that experimentation really helped us. Also on the, the user interface side, because we had a software company background, we knew how to user test different user interfaces. And so we didn't get a couple docs in a room and decide, hey, we think we should build this. Uh, we sort of rigorously, we didn't have any docs in the company at the time at all. So we, we found people and we user tested and we iterated and built 15 different iterations of the user interface that we built before we finalized. So I think that software company experimental approach, uh, exactly the thing I was making fun of when I was talking about biologists before, uh, that's actually, I think, what ended up in the end being the deciding factor for us. So it does make sense to have a balance of two approaches when you build for healthcare and kind of consider the biology side and the software side. And if either is missing, you're not going to get great results. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I learned a new way of thinking when I, when I did the biology, but I, I certainly was well ingrained in the other way of thinking beforehand. So yeah, it's about switching and understanding what's the right thing to do at the right time. Switching gears to the future now, what's your vision for closed loop in the future? And it's impossible to completely re revolutionize healthcare, but what is the ambition? You know, I still come back to this. Are we really using all the right data to make all the right decisions all the time, every day, everywhere in the world? And the, the sort of North Star we like, I like to work by is that um, there is a ton of data we are not using today. Um, you know, th there is a lot of what we do is traditional healthcare data, which is very important and has a ton of signal. But you know, how does your doctor use your Fitbit data or your your other fitness tracker or your genetic data in your sort of standard care today? The answer is they don't. Um, and they're not going to be able to learn it in medical school. It's only going to come through computational assistance because that kind of personalized level of care is just too difficult. You know, it's, the scale is bigger than the human mind uh, can comprehend. So it's really important uh, that we get there. And I think, I, I feel like we're at the beginning of a massive change in healthcare over the next 20 years. We will have this data, we will have this information, the incentives will shift around and we'll really switch from, uh, I think something that is so treatment driven and pill driven right now to a lot more behavior driven change. The social media for one, positive or negatively, we have learned how to influence human behavior using digital technology. Um, Say what you will about the first attempts to do that on social media, but we did learn a lot. Uh, what if we could use all of that information to make people make better health decisions? Um, 
I think we're just at the beginning of a very long process of incorporating the data and making that information available so people have a better understanding of their health and a better ability to make decisions, um, whether about treatment or lifestyle changes or whatever that, that improve their lives. So I'm being part of that whole process is what really excites me. Um, and, and I don't, I don't like to make specific predictions about where things are going to go because I think they're always wrong. Um, but I do know that we are on a, the, the, the amount of data we have available and our ability to use it, we're, we're not even scratching the surface of, of what we could be doing. And the data, as much data as we're not using today, we're getting more and more data all the time. Um, and so that's all very exciting to me. Yeah, getting more and more data, that's one trend we can be absolutely sure about, regardless of yeah. uh, everything else. How do, how do we learn what works? It, it, it's such an important thing. People are trying all kinds of programs now, but we're not doing a great job of learning. Like 1% of patients are enrolled in a clinical trial, and that's the only way the health system has of learning and improving right now. And We've got to start learning more from all of the treatment that is happening every day. And as soon as we sort of start to unlock that, Google does this in advertising. Every ad is an ad, but it's also an experiment of comparing one approach versus another of how, of how to get somebody's attention. That's not how medical care works today. We're not, there's treatments, but we're not learning from what works and what doesn't. And when we start to unlock that and start getting better, that's actually the closed loop in closed loop AI. Uh, originally in the vision was how do we start unlocking all of the treatments that are happening and all of the healthcare that's being delivered today and learning from that to create a better system. Uh, if we can do that, then you start on a path to, to really solving some of these big issues. Actually creating the closed loop. Got you. Okay. Sounds good. Dave, thanks a lot for that. Uh, where can listeners learn more about the company? Where they can follow you on social media? If you're hiring, yeah, I'll uh, talk about that. Yep. Yep. Uh, Closedloop.ai. We're on the web at Closedloop.ai with Twitter, uh, um, other feeds. We are definitely hiring for, you know, particularly for data scientists. Um, we make a data science platform. Some of our customers use that platform, but we also have a team of data scientists that uh, use the platform on behalf of our customers for customers that don't have or don't want to have a data science team internally. Okay, we'll add all those links to the show notes. Dave, thanks a lot for joining me today. Great. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks a lot.